0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you, but i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We begin podcast number 16 in our series on the second half of world history. If you've been with me since the beginning of these podcasts on the second half of world history, we're going to continue on to see the advancement of Western civilization. However, in this episode, it's going to take a very nasty turn. If you've been with me since the first podcast of World History 1, you are aware of all the conflicts that we covered in world history up to this point in the 20th century. But the war that we're going to be discussing today is nothing like any other conflict that happened before since humans have been walking upright in recorded history starting at roughly 400,000 years ago. In the last podcast, number 15, this was perhaps our last podcast in what we retrospectively might call the age of innocence. In other words, when we were kind of freewheeling, thinking about the various aspects of human life aesthetics aesthetics, and uh, getting into the likes of Freud and positivism and how many other different movements that were going on uh, started by Freud and Comte and how many others. But that's all over with with this podcast. In fact, at the end of podcast number 15, I didn't even give you a warning about what we're heading into now. And the reason being is because it is going to be such a negative, horrible next four years in world history because we will be discussing what then was known as the Great War with the slogan, the war and end all wars. However, because that was not the case, it will simply be retrospectively known after four more decades simply as World War I. So with World War I, Before we actually get into the conflict itself, and for those of you that have been with me since the beginning of world history, uh, the first half of world history, you remember again that in no way I cover the actual minutia of these battles. I'm not going to be getting into the Battle of the Marne or the Battle of Verdun or any of these others. It's not that they're not important, but there are plenty of military history podcasts out there, that in some cases do a good job of explaining the events as they unfolded. However, all too many of them begin to get into what we call second-guessing. And there's no way, even if I was a five-star general, there is no way in any way that I feel the capacity or I feel that I have the ability to second-guess and cast a retrospective judgment on what the commanders and their so- soldiers did in a particular battle at a, at a certain point in time. So rather what I'm going to be getting into are the very important events that lead up to the reason why war broke out. And then most importantly, how was that conflict wrapped up? And did that resol- did those resolutions sow the seeds of what will eventually become sadly a second major conflict which will dwarf this one economically and, most importantly, in human lives. So with World War I, we start with, again, getting into the how and the why. Why did war break out? Well, the first that we're going to be taking a look at, the first term, and the reason why, retrospectively, we blame this particular episode on for the breakout of World War I is because of this concept called imperialism. Simply put, a four-word definition of imperialism is simply the influence through territorial acquisition. In a nutshell, that's what imperialism was, extending the influence of the mother country through territorial acquisition through a variety of ways. So let's unpack that. What do we mean then? Let's expand on this idea of what imperialism is. First off, the idea of imperialism was that a mother country, primarily either the United States or far more uh, chances of this being done, that war was done, is the amount of uh, colonizing that was being done by the mother countries in Europe. The idea was that they would invest and build in a foreign country's infrastructure. And that's how they would pound their chest as, for lack of a better way to phrase it, justification for moving into a country uninvited and subjugating and ruling its people. They would defend themselves, the mother country, the colonizing countries would defend themselves saying, no, we were bringing modern technology, Western ways, Western thinking to countries that weren't privy. To this type of infrastructure or their, it would, because of their economy. So they would pound their chest again that they were doing good for the countries that they were colonizing. However, like it or not, the society would be transformed as a result of those investments. There was no way around it. Yes, sometimes those changes were good. sometimes they were bad, but the most important thing is that the population of those of those countries, the societies didn't have a say in the matter. And that is key. Because if the mother country couldn't buy its way in, couldn't persuade the country's leaders to invite that country in, they simply moved in and using forces of intimidation, if not outright hostility, to make sure that they set up that host government to accept the colonizing country. If the existing country was simply too weak to support it militarily or economically or even politically, it simply became a colony. So that's what, again, expanded definition of what imperialism was. And it had been going on, listeners, truly since the year 1492. The idea of international colonization started with Columbus's discovery it has still been going on with largely no sense or idea of even slowing down and it will continue as we're going to see well into the 20th 20th century so what were these motivations therefore for these imperialistic doctrines in other words how did these mother countries leaders these kings and queens of europe and american presidents justify their actions well first off the number one out of the three major reasons that we'll discuss here is, number one, Darwinistic principles. Remember from the last podcast, number 15, when I was discussing the dawn of European or the advancement of European thinking, the role of Charles Darwin. Well, Charles Darwin and his book, The Origin of the Species, all he was attempting to explain is why did some uh, subset of certain species continue to exist after others died or perished entirely. That's all Darwin was trying to answer. But world leaders would hijack his thinking and apply it to human populations. If we are the stronger people, the colonizing countries would say, then we have the right, therefore, to move into land that is being ruled by weaker leaders. So number one was Darwinistic principles. Now, what about the various major church organizations around the world? Why wouldn't they have stepped in and say, hey, this is not how it's done. This is immoral. This is unethical. Because they also saw opportunity. One was Darwinistic principles by the political entities of the colonizing countries. But second reason was religious conversion opportunities. The Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant faiths, Orthodox, even Islam wasn't going to back down. They see a population that have never been exposed to their faith or ideas. They see that as a population ripe for the converting. And yes, go ahead and be cynical, because the course of con- a population, a new population converted, converted, also meant that there was an additional potential for the collection basket. So that was a second reason. The third was strategic and political. The establishment of canals. Human made waterways connecting one major body with another. If one particular third world country was standing in the way, then for purposes of establishing a canal, that would be a reason for colonization. And I'm not going to pick on just the European countries that were guilty of doing this. The United States was no different. I'd like you to answer this question. Give me the name of the canal that connects the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Through Central America. What's the name of that canal? If you said the Panama Canal, you're absolutely right. But the fact of the matter is, Panama, when the canal was about to be dug, didn't exist. Panama, if you want to take a quick look at a current world map or a map of Central America, Panama at one time was actually part of Colombia. But the Panamanian nationalists were trying to fight for independence in the late 1800s. So the United States swoops in and says, hey, we're all about that. We can take a, You can take a page from our playbook when we were trying to fight Great Britain for independence. So the Panamanian nationalists said, hey, there we go, fist bump, high five. We have the Americans backing us. And they were able to gain their independence and push Colombia to its current border. And then the Panamanians want to turn around and high five us and say, thanks so much, Americans. Enjoy your trip back. Couldn't have done it without you. And that's when America said, yeah, not so fast because we're not going anywhere. As a result of our helping you, we are going to basically cut your country in half as we dig or further expand an already existing waterway and make it a canal connecting the north the atlantic and the pacific oceans again the panamanians didn't have a say strategic and political reasons also meant the absorption of various islands and straits remember islands can be very strategically important in military history they have been and they continue to be and well and continue well into the 20th century straits those little necks of water that connect two waterways the dardanelles the Bosporus Straits, the Strait of Gibraltar, the English Channel. These little snacks of water become unbelievably important. And it's no surprise in the 20th century that the Dardanelles and the Bosporus Strait are some of the most fought-over areas of water, much less areas of the surface of the world, in all of world history. And then finally was the expansion of various land masses. So the question begs. Did this work? Did this age of colonization that was started in 1492, did it really work? Well, consider that by 1800, America and a handful of European countries owned 35% of all land on Earth. But that was 1800. This podcast is starting out with World War One. Where are we now, 114 years later, after 1800? did that number go up or go down? Ladies and gentlemen, it not only went up, it more than doubled. It skyrocketed. By 1914, the Europeans and the United States controlled 84% of the world's landmass. Remember that on the surface of the globe, 70% of the surface is water. That leaves 30% to live on and be able to wipe ourselves off of the water and dry ourselves off, right? So 30% of that 30%, 84% are flying a European or an American flag. Now, if you're trying to be deferential here, if you're trying to defend the land grabs that were taking place in the last few hundred years, up from 1914 on back, consider that If you might say, yeah, well, that still leaves 16% of the rest of the world up for grabs. It really doesn't. Because 8.1% of that landmass that remains is locked under sea ice in Antarctica, which no country at this point has any interest in. That leaves just less than 8% of the remaining land of the world to go the crumbs to fall to other countries. The common denominator with that roughly 8% of the land is that the Europeans and America largely deemed that land as unnecessary, unprofitable. These would house your massive deserts, for example, and other areas that were simply inhospitable to extended colonization. So that was the most important part of the mindset and the political and military actions of the Europeans and the United States that would eventually precipitate what became known as a world war. Imperialism was an important aspect of that. There was also, though, a second one. So imperialism was number one. The second one, extremely important, was a set of actions that, ironically enough, was supposed to prevent war from ever breaking out, much less world war. And that is what we became known as the alliance systems. And notice I said that plural, not alliance system, but plural systems. You might want to pause the podcast here and come back to it later when you can pull up a map a Google map, and what I suggest you put into your search engine is the alliance system, or you can also just put in triple alliance versus triple entente. Entente is the French word for alliance, E-N-T-E-N-T-E. If you simply pull that up in a map, you're going to see the war, the map of Europe, and you're going to see two color schemes. One, of course, will be for the triple alliance, the other for the triple entente. Those alliances were formed to prevent war from ever breaking out. And if war did break out somehow, that it would be extremely short and not very costly. And as we know, this was a colossal failure. So most importantly, why? And that's what we'll get to. But first off, for those that are just not able to stop right now, uh, for whatever reason, I'm just going to rattle these countries off. There's only six major players here. But in the triple alliance would be the countries of Germany, Austria, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Italy. So Germany, the Austro-Hungarians, and Italy. They formed the Triple Alliance. The Entente powers are Russia, France, and Great Britain. Now, again, for those of you not looking at a map, please know. That again, part of the reason that this alliance, these alliance systems were problematic, is because of the geography of Europe, of the European continent. The problem is that Germany, Austria, and Italy are all connected, running up and down the spine of Europe. The Entente powers, on the other hand, are not connected at all. England is separate from France because of the English Channel. England and France together have a significant gap in between them before they connect with Russia because of the alliance powers of Germany, the Austro-Hungarians, and Italy. It is here that I'll stop my class in introducing World War One, and I put my suit my students in a very uncomfortable position. I simply ask them if, given the opportunity, if they were. For, or to, lack of a better way to phrase it, not an opportunity, if they were forced to have to fight on one side for the best chances of survival, would they rather fight with the alliance powers or the entente powers? I said, put all your stereotypes, all of your other knowledge about these countries aside. This is just you picking up a Gatling gun, about to detonate, uh, pull the string for a cannon to go off, What side, where would, on that map of Europe, where would you want to be to give yourself the best chances of surviving the conflict and coming home, hopefully in one piece with as many body parts intact as when you left home? And it's amazing the way that the class just stays silent for a moment as they stare at that map of Europe that I have uh, blown up for them on the big screen in the front of the classroom. And they stare at it a moment, and usually nobody volunteers an answer because, of course, nobody wants to fight no matter what side they're on, right? So I force their hand, and I say, now, you don't have to defend yourselves. You don't have to say why, but raise your hand if you think you would rather be with the alliance powers, Germany, Austria, Italy. It's ironic, after my 20-plus years of teaching at the college level, not including high school and grammar school, the way that roughly half the class will put their hands up, with the other half wanting to be with the entente powers. Then, for those that are comfortable enough to do that, I ask them to explain why. And of course, they see the various weaknesses on both sides. The Entente power is disconnected. Again, that waterway of the English Channel separating England and France, Russia way over on the other side of the uh, alliance powers, uh, I don't want any part of that, some students say. And then the other students object saying, yeah, but if you're with the, uh, if you're with the alliance powers, Germany, the Austro Hungarians, and Italy, you've got a two front war. Exactly. Both alliance systems have strategic important benefits, but also extremely important deficits. Neither alliance system really holds any upper hand here. And sadly, that's what's going to allow or make this war drag on. For as long as it will. So these are the two underlying mindsets and political slash military or geopolitical realities that is simmering in this pot that's about to explode on the stove, if you will, leading up to 1914. The ongoing policies of imperialism and these secret alliance systems that were forged decades before so now we then get into the actual outbreak of world war one and even before that those alliance systems and the policies of imperialism together are still not enough to make world war break out it's going to need a spark if you look at the imperial system as a huge vat or barrel of gasoline, along with the alliance systems, if you look at imperialism and the alliance system as two huge containers of gasoline, by itself, the gas will not ignite. Something needs to ignite it. That we need a spark. Well, that spark is going to come on June 28, 1914. This would be the prelude to war. In 1914, Southeastern Europe was exhausted with prior civil wars taking place in the Balkan region of modern, former, modern, former country of Yugoslavia on the Northwest area, Northeast area continent off of the Adriatic Sea. The Balkans have had a series of civil skirmishes as they fought for independence. If you recall back my podcast when I talked about the unifications of Germany as well as Italy, do you remember the European power that wanted to meddle in both of those unification processes but were shut out? You got it, the Austro Hungarians. As a result, they don't want to see any more unification being done in any territories that are adjacent to its own borders. Therefore, they are meddling in any opportunity for countries to try to break or forge the opportunity to create a unified country. So Serbia, who is ambitious to unite all of its peoples, attempted in the fur what became known as the First and Second Balkan Wars for nationalism to skyrocket. Nationalism again being pride in one's own country. Yes, peace conferences were formed to try to resolve those conflicts, but nothing lasted. So these tensions also simmered, We're just brought in a third barrel of gasoline here. Well, the Austro-Hungarians thought this was their opportunity to physically demonstrate how strong the Austro-Hungarians are to Serbia by sending one of their archdukes down, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sofia, who were sent down to Sarajevo, more or less to try it as a demonstration and a potential peace offering between the massive Austro-Hungarian Empire and, if you will, Little Serbia at that time. Well, there was a parade that was planned, and the Archduke and his wife were in the back of a limousine. And as the parade was going down the streets of Sarajevo, a gunshot was heard, and then another. And the bottom line is, is that the Archduke and his wife were assassinated, were shot and killed by a member of the Serbian Black Hand Society that supposedly still exists to this day. But of course, you're not going to find a lot of information readily available on the internet. And if you do, you have to question whether the information is valid or not, or is true or not. Well, when the news of the assassinations of the Archduke and his wife hit the international news press stream. There was outrage everywhere. And of course, within no no more, no more importantly than Austro-Hungary itself. So there was outrage over this unnecessary assassination. People were enraged everywhere except Serbia that actually seemed to celebrate the assassinations. Well, the Archduke and his, his wife, as their bodies were being sent back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Austro-Hungarians demanded retribution. They demanded that the criminal, that the assassin be found and turned over to the Austro-Hungarians. And they immediately sent down a team of investigators. And this is where an already infamous assassination plot sadly widened even further, because it was found out through the investigation that Ferdinand and Sophia were not going to return, most likely under any circumstances alive. By the time Gustav Princip, the member of the Black Hand Society that assassinated them, by the time he took his shot, there were already missed opportunities when they should have been killed before. This truly was what the American Secret Service and the American government feared about the Kennedy assassination, that Oswald was part of a larger plot. He wasn't, and it wasn't. Oswald acted alone, but that was not the case with the assassinations of the Archduke and his wife. There were different opportunities that the royal couple was supposed to be killed, and by the time Princeps saw that limousine, and that parade continuing to travel, he knew that the first opportunities weren't taken, so now it was his turn, and he didn't miss. So what do we mean by that is that <clears throat> this was an established plot, which means what? It takes a lot of communication, it takes planning, it takes training, practice. This wasn't a lone rubble, And that's what enrages the international community even more. What's more is that there was an explosion before Gustav even saw the couple within his view. An individual who was supposed to assassinate the couple prior to Gustav's opportunity, there was the individual who threw the equivalent of a hand grenade under the limousine that the royal couple was in. The problem is that the hand grenade equivalent rolled back and blew up the car behind the limousine. Well, with that, the driver of the limo, recognizing the danger for what it was, immediately pulls out of the parade line of cars, vehicles, and floors it ahead. When he got to the first intersection, he could have taken a right, which would have brought him over a river, He could have gone straight or he could have gone left, fearing that if he went straight where the parade route was supposed to go, that it would have been too vulnerable because maybe there's further would-be assassins ahead. Good thinking on the driver's part. To go right would take him over a river and being on a bridge would expose the couple even more. So he took the driver took a left and when he did, he started to go up a hill. And I stop right here because we have to, I'm going to remind you of the year 1914. We're not talking about smooth shifting transmissions here. We're not talking about hydromatic transmissions. We're not talking about automatic. We're talking about manual transmissions with vehicles that are still difficult to drive. And yes, at times are known to die out, are known to falter. Sure enough, as the limousine was being driven up the hill, the engine died. The driver threw it into neutral, but that allowed the car to roll back some. And that's when Gustav Princip had his opportunity and shot both the Archduke and his wife. He did attempt to escape. He eventually jumped into the river, but only in a few feet of water, which made him get stuck. Amazing he didn't snap his neck. However, he was caught, he was apprehended in Serbia, did nothing about it so with that the austrians demanded and gave the serbians a equivalent of a 30 day deadline to hand over prince and all of the would be assassins that were a part of it in the meantime austria double checked its alliance systems with the germans and the italians and then they just waited for the July 28th, 1914 deadline to approach. Either is going to hand over those assassins and all of the conspirators, or war, like no one has ever seen before, is going to break out. And I think you have an inkling about how that turned out. And that's what we'll begin with in our next podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. I'm not the one